that Sarah and I have been involved recently in foster care. Uh, But I wanted to take an opportunity this morning uh, to kind of share with you the whole story. Um, There's some things that uh, we've had uh, go on where uh, some things we can share, some some things we can't share. We're at a position now where I feel like I can share this story with you about our family and how it's grown. And so this story started uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of five to six years ago when Sarah asked me if I would be open to becoming foster parents. Uh, And I said, maybe. But the truth was, I really wasn't on board with this idea at first. Um, I know that's a shock to to Sarah. It's not at all. I really wasn't on board. I said maybe because I'm like, oh, this is one of those things, you know, I'll indulge this and, and maybe it'll, you know, go away. And so I said, maybe, I wasn't really on board. We talked about it, uh, but our fam- we had a family of four. We were living in a, a three-bedroom townhouse. We didn't have a ton of space uh, left over to kind of seriously consider it. So I figured that that would be the end of it. Um, we just, we don't really have the room. Uh, and so it's a, it's a nice idea, but probably not for us. God's not calling us to do that. We don't really have room. So, uh, so and I was wrong, by the way, that's the spoiler alert. Uh, I was wrong. Uh, a few months later, we were visiting a church. Uh, I, it, may, it might have been a few months, might have been a year. Some of this early timing gets mixed up in my mind. But later on, we were visiting a church out of town. Uh, and wouldn't you know, that morning at that church, uh, they had a family get up on stage and share all about their journey through foster care and through foster adoption. Um, and by the end of that morning, I knew two things. Uh, based on like all the looks I was getting from Sarah and like the elbows. And I knew that Sarah still wanted to do this. That's the one thing I knew. And by the end, I was pretty sure that God was kind of nudging us to do this too. And that was new. Like I, this started as something like, oh, this, here's something Sarah wants to do. And now it's like, oh, now Sarah and God are ganging up on me. So that's not cool. Um, so we decided we would pray about it. Um, and, but I'm guessing our prayers were different in that time, in that season of our life. Sarah was praying for God's timing uh, and for God to lead us to a house that had more room. I was praying, uh, dear Lord, take this cup away from me. <laughs> um, let, you know, let, this, let this just be a, a thing that doesn't happen. And, and, and wouldn't you know, that summer at CIY Move, the event that we take our high school students to, uh, they always highlight some sort of mission or ministry or something going on globally, some sort of problem or issue that needs the attention of the church. And that summer, uh, they were talking about the foster care system. I mean, God, I get it, finally. Like, you're getting through to me on this. So they showed this film. CIY is really good. They've become really good at making these films. They showed this film that they made called Hard to Place, and it focused on the brokenness of foster care. Uh, I learned that 8% of kids in the system uh, will age out without ever experiencing a family environment at all. I learned that 30% of foster kids statistically will go on to repeat the cycle and be abusive or neglectful to their own children. I learned that 50% of kids in foster care who age out develop a substance addiction or end up homeless within three years of aging out of foster care. And I learned that 70% of girls in foster care end up pregnant within 18 months of being emancipated from the system. And after watching that movie, after learning those things at CIY, Sarah and I knew that we couldn't do nothing anymore. We knew that God was moving us in a direction that we had to do something, but like a lot of times when God is moving you to do something, we had no idea where to start. 
or what to do. We had a vague idea about like that there's licensing and that there's hoops to jump through, but we really didn't know where to start or what to do. Um, and we decided the first thing we needed to do was be serious about getting into a house and getting the space. So that next year in 2018, we were finally able to buy the house that we were looking for. Um, and so my excuse for not having enough space was gone. Uh, and so we started researching how to become licensed for foster care. Uh, we started talking to the boys uh, about what it might mean for our family to have foster kids come into our family. But uh, Sarah's mom around that time was dealing with cancer uh, and we were needed to help uh, during, during that season. And so foster care again became something that we would look at someday in the future. We knew God wanted us to do it, but uh, now was not the time. But we had this extra bedroom now. We had this extra bedroom, we set it up as a guest room and everything, and then in the summer of 2019, we learned that one of Seth's close friends, uh, this girl who had been part of our youth ministry for a couple years already, might need a place to stay. And so we brought Isabel on our summer camping trip that year, and we talked with her about how she would always be welcome to stay with us for a while if she needed to. And two months later, the day before uh, Sarah's mom passed away from cancer, actually, uh, Izzy moved in. She moved into that guest room, and that guest room turned into Izzy's room. And it didn't start as a foster care situation. We were just trying to show hospitality. There was no, no system involved. It was just us uh, trying to be open to what God wanted us to do. Um, but we learned that Izzy quickly became part of our family. Uh, it was a hospitality situation, but it was hard to hold Izzy at an arm's length. Izzy uh, got into all of our family stuff, right? And, and she quickly became part of our family, so much so that within three months, we had a, a family trip to Disney World planned, and there was Izzy along with us at Disney World. Um, and I tell you what, it felt totally natural. It felt completely natural walking around Disney World, um, paying for all her stuff the way I pay for my kids' stuff. It felt totally natural. Uh, at Disney World. And so we felt like, okay, cool. God has moved us into this. This is pretty cool. Um, I know how to do this. I'm a youth minister uh, as a career, you know, for my career. And so I feel fairly comfortable and confident around teenagers. So cool. God did something that was like in my comfort zone. So not so bad, right? Well, okay. After about, about a month after we got home from Disney, God's plan became uh, more obvious and a little more complicated. I got a call in my office on a Wednesday morning uh, from Child and Family Services uh, asking if Sarah and I would be willing to serve as an emergency foster placement for Izzy and her little sister, Nikki, who had just turned three years old at the time. And that was kind of unexpected. They told me that they intended to keep the girls together. Uh, so if they couldn't stay with us, they would have to be moved into a foster home uh, and wait for placement with another family. Um, and at that point, when I heard that, there really wasn't any decision to be made because Izzy had become part of our family and I wasn't going to let her go through that. So I said yes, uh, that we would be happy to be a home for, for both of these girls, for these sisters separated by so many years. And it sounded hypothetical on the phone. It was like, hey, is this a possibility uh, in case we needed to? Um, but then the next day, it became our reality. That, that Thursday, uh, DCFS brought both girls to our house. They walked us through our responsibilities as foster parents. Um, and that happened uh, right near the end of February 2020. So if you know anything about 2020, <laughs> that was perfect timing. And it hasn't exactly been a smooth ride. Um, it started with lice, like the very next day. Thank you, DCFS, for that gift. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and it moved quickly into COVID quarantine, where it was like, all right, great, you have a three-year-old. Now she can't leave your house. So that was fun. And, uh, and, and it went into remote learning. 
whole other thing. And man, all this stuff that we weren't expecting and, and that we weren't expecting to, to have uh, two daughters along with our two sons to go through all that stuff that we weren't expecting. But listen, despite our difficulties, I can look back and I can see God's hand moving through it all to create one big, happy, messy family. And I tell that story because I really think that our experience over these last couple years reflects what it means for the church to be a growing family. God has been teaching me so much just by living in my house about what it means for the church to be a growing family. For this vision statement that we've been saying for years and years at Northwest, it's become my lived reality in my home, and, and I wanna share the things that God's been teaching me about this. Throughout the Bible, God uses family language to talk about his people. In the Old Testament, all over the place, God calls the nation of Israel his children. Uh, Throughout the Bible, God is called a father, Old Testament and New Testament. And throughout the New Testament church, uh, believers in the church are very frequently referred to as brothers and sisters. There's family language from beginning to end uh, in in the Bible. It's a metaphor that that the Bible uses probably the most often to describe life in the church, life as God's people. But for a lot of people, family is kind of a loaded metaphor because their experience with family has not been particularly positive. And so for a lot of people, reading this family language in the Bible is difficult. It doesn't really unlock this this loving, uh, inclusive feeling that God intends for it to unlock. So I wanna spend the rest of our time this morning uh, looking at how the Bible lays out this family idea, Uh, how we're supposed to become part of this family, what it means for us, and how a family's supposed to work. And so the first thing is that we are a growing family. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, John's describing who Jesus is and why he came into the world. And John says that he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So when a person receives Jesus, when they believe in his name, they're invited into God's family as his children. So we're a growing family because the invitation is for all who believe, for all who receive Jesus. Uh, All are welcome to join this family. The church is designed to keep growing. That there's never a point when this family is finished, when God's like, well, that's enough. There's never a point when the family is finished. And God's family is supposed to grow uh, in two main ways, numerically and spiritually. So God's family is supposed to grow numerically, uh, really based on some things that Jesus said. Uh, Early in Jesus' ministry, he was teaching uh, in this house and his family heard about it. Uh, And Mark 3.21 says that they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And so uh, your family knows you best, but that's kind of two sides of a coin, right? That's kind of a blessing and a curse. When Jesus started his ministry, his family was like, wait a minute, Jesus? Like, that guy's my brother, that guy's my son. Like, he didn't sin, but at at the same time, I'm like, I also don't, don't know that he's, you know, like, supposed to be teaching everybody about God. And so they went, they're like, he's... Maybe he's a lunatic, so we'll go, we'll go check on him and see what's going on. And so they show up, right, and his mother and brothers showed up to take, his, take him home, Mark says, and the crowd came in and told Jesus, hey, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. They're looking for you. Um, they want to take you home in a straitjacket. <laughs> I added that part. That's not in Mark. And Jesus said, Jesus says this, who are my mother and my brothers? 
And he looks at those seated in a circle around him. He looks at, you know, his small group and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. So Jesus redefines family. That family is bigger than biology. That, that true family is, is this spiritual reality that God invites us to become his children and we accept his invitation and we're in his family. Our shared commitment to God ties us closer than bloodlines do. And we need family in our lives. We, we need people who will support us and people who are as committed to us as we are to them because uh, we weren't created to, to be alone, to go through this stuff by ourselves. We, we were made to live in communities. We were made to live in families. Um, but not everyone ends up in a loving biological family because we live in a broken, sinful, fallen world filled with broken, sinful, fallen people. And that's why God's redefinition of family is so powerful that everyone can belong in full to this kingdom family of God, the family that's constantly growing bigger because everyone can belong. But numerically, uh, it's not the only way that God's family is growing. It's also constantly growing deeper. In, uh, in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul says, we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters. Ooh, there it is, family language, right? We always ought to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. So not only are you growing numerically as a family, more and more people are coming into the family, but our faith is growing, and our love for one another is growing. Being a member of God's family starts with receiving and believing Jesus, but it doesn't end there. That's not the end. It's not like, all right, welcome to the family, and then like we ignore you forever. It involves this lifetime of growing, growing in our faith and growing in our love for others, for, for each other. And Paul tells us what it looks like. Paul, the Bible doesn't leave us to ask questions. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, which, by the way, you've probably heard it, read at weddings all the time, and it's appropriate, that's fine, um, because it's all about love. But Paul didn't write this about uh, romantic love between a couple about to get married, although it does apply. Uh, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13 sandwiched right between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, where he's talking about life in the church, life in the family. Um, the metaphor he's using is body in, at the, in that context, but same idea, right? That the church is a body and everyone contributes and everyone has gifts and everyone is valuable. And then in chap that's chapter 12. And then in chapter 14, Paul's specifically talking about uh, how some gifts in the Corinthian church were being uh, elevated over other ones. That, you know, if you can do this, you're more valuable in the family. And Paul's like, that's not true. So Paul's taking the, t the time to say, you know, everyone has a gift and everyone's valuable. No one gift is a, a, a bigger deal than any other gift. And then in the middle is 1 Corinthians 13. It doesn't make any sense for Paul to be like, now hold on, let's talk about marriage for a minute. No, he's talking about the church. He's talking about this is what unlocks the whole deal, the, the way we treat each other in 1 Corinthians 13. And it's a familiar passage, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Uh, it, it does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is the way we're called to treat one another in God's family. We're designed to always keep growing to continue to grow in numbers, to continue to invite people in to experience God's love, but also to continue growing deeper uh, in our faith and in the way that we love one another. 
So, so anyone who receives Jesus and believes in him has the right to become a child of God, Jesus says. But how does it happen? So near the end of Galatians chapter 3, this is not my normal preaching Bible. I don't know where that went. These, the text is very small in this Bible. Either that or I'm just getting old. Here we go. Oh, that's not the right. Hold on. My goodness. Let me get to Galatians. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. Oh, there it is. If you want to follow along, it'll be on the screen, but I can't really turn around. So here we go. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, Paul says this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, We were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has made you also an heir. So becoming a child of God happens through adoption. God chooses us to become members of his family. To be adopted is to be fully accepted as a member of the family with all the rights and privileges of a natural born child. And this is our story. Every one of us who is in Christ has been adopted into God's family. Previously, at one point in your past and mine, God was not our father, but in Christ, we are now included in God's family. We belong. God chose us and we said yes to his invitation. And God's invitation is for all. At the beginning of of what we just read in, in Galatians 3, in that in passage, Paul uses, hammers that word, all over and over. Look back at it. Paul says, all, 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 like four or five times just in in a a couple of verses. All are welcome. And then he makes it super clear that in Christ, there are no racial, cultural, socioeconomic, or gender distinctions because all are one. All are adopted. All are children. All belong. Now, that's not to say that you have to reject your cultural or racial background to be part of God's family. But your background does not get in the way of becoming a child of God. The early church struggled thinking that a person had to become Jewish in order to join God's family. They were trying to work through that and figure it out. Until God made it clear to the the apostles in the early church that Gentiles didn't have to become Jews in order to belong. They could come as they are and, and belong in God's family. And so race and culture don't prevent anyone from being adopted. All are welcome. Neither does social status or economic status. Now in Paul's time, that included slaves. Uh, it, it would be, uh, Paul would be remiss 
in talking about social and economic status in his audience, in his context, not to mention uh, those who are slaves. Uh, because uh, statistically, uh, we know that almost a third of the population of the Roman Empire would have been in that category, would have been slaves of some kind, um, regardless of what circumstances led them into that, uh, whether it, they were born into it or whether they uh, you know, willingly went into servitude to pay off a debt. Um, there was a, a substantial amount of the population that Paul was talking to uh, that would have been uh, slaves uh, as far as their economic status. Now, that's not uh, thankfully true. Uh, in, in our world, 30% of our population is not in that situation. But I do think it translates when you think in terms of economic status. Um, we might say poor or wealthy, or maybe even poor or comfortable, uh, if, if you want to make that distinction uh, in our time. But at any rate, a person's social standing or economic status is irrelevant for acceptance in God's family. All are welcome. Doesn't matter how much money you have, there's not an income threshold in order to qualify to come be part of God's family. Um, you know, slave or free, all are welcome. There's evidence, by the way, in the early church that slaves were leaders in the church. That, that in the church context, in the family of God, that some slaves were so exemplary that they were elevated to leadership positions over the people who owned them uh, within the church family. And that was a revolutionary idea in the first century. Nobody was doing that, but that was happening in the church. So this idea that, that the Bible and God are, is pro-slavery is, is culturally ridiculous. Um, in the first century, uh, what the, the way that the Bible treated those who were in slavery was completely revolutionary at the time, and no one in culture was doing it. Um, I, 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 well, that's as far as I'm going with that. So, uh, so Paul's, Paul then makes this other revolutionary statement about gender, right? Uh, that gender is also not a criteria for membership uh, in God's family. And that also would have been totally revolutionary uh, in, in a Jewish and Greco-Roman world of the first century that had a very clear gender hierarchy, that, that men were at the top uh, and, and, you know, women couldn't even inherit you know, when Paul uses his language talking about heirs, there, he uses masculine language because only men could inherit uh, and, and back in the first century. And so uh, th this was a, a well-established historical uh, gender disparity that Paul is speaking into. And he says, no, not male or female. God says, not in my family. In my family, we're not going to have this gender inequality. In God's family, there's no place for racial discrimination or cultural preferences or economic prejudice or social hierarchy or gender inequality. If you belong to Jesus, you belong in the family, period. That's the criteria. If you belong to Jesus, you belong in God's family, end of criteria. And actually, Paul says, you don't just belong. It's actually more than that. You more than belong. Paul says you become an heir with full rights to the family inheritance. And like I mentioned, it bothers some people that Paul uses masculine language. They accuse uh, the, the Bible and Paul in particular of being misogynistic. Um, but historically, it would make sense. At the time that Paul was writing, uh, only male children could legally inherit. But Paul, listen, Paul just finished specifically saying that there is no superior gender in God's family. He just finished specifically pointing out that in, in God's family, there is neither male nor female distinction. All are one. So that means that when Paul is talking about uh, adoption to sonship, he's applying it to both genders. 
Adoption to sonship is open to both men and women. When Paul calls us God's sons, he's not making a gender statement. Son is used to convey the privilege of growing up to inherit the family estate, the father's wealth and inheritance. To be a son of God doesn't mean being manly or masculine. It means being close to God and being led by God's spirit. You know, Paul, Paul says being so close that we can call God with this, this intimate term, this Abba, this, this daddy idea that we feel close enough to God to use these intimate terms to talk to him because we have a close relationship. And Paul continues this idea in Romans 8. And in Romans 8, starting in, in verse 14, Paul says, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So there's adoption to sonship again. God's spirit gives each believer all the rights and status of being God's child. The spirit enables us to experience the same kind of intimacy with the father that Jesus did. Uh, when Jesus prayed and called God Abba, Paul is now saying that's open to you as well. You can experience a relationship with the father just like the relationship that Jesus experienced with the father. And there's this idea of heirs again. Paul repeats this again. But here in Romans 8, Paul takes the idea of heirs and inheriting a little bit further. He says that we are co-heirs with Christ. See, this is, that's new. We get the idea of heirs and inheritance. That makes sense. Like, okay, cool. I'm part of God's family. I have a future. God, you know, my, you know, God has made promises that now apply to me and I'm included and I belong. But Paul says, listen, you belong so much that you are co-heirs with Jesus. What Jesus inherits, we inherit. And that blows me away. Co-heirs with Christ. This is what drives all the sibling language in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament church. When people, when the believers calling themselves brothers and sisters, this, it's, it's, it's from here. That God is the father, Jesus is the son, and we are all the brothers and sisters in this family. And so it's clear that, that not only are we growing, but we are, in all senses of the word, family. That, that we have been given full status as adopted sons and daughters of the Father. And it's important to understand that the church does not adopt new believers. God does. When you come to Jesus, you're not adopted by a group of surrogate parents in the church. Um, you're adopted by God. And, and those of us who have been in God's family for a long time need to remember that we are not the parents of the church family. God is. God is the father. We are siblings of one another under the authority of the father. In the church, we're all siblings. And God is our father. And as siblings, we all have something valuable to offer each other, but none of us is more valuable than any other. And while it's true that we're all siblings, none of us is more valuable than any other, those who are mature, those who have been in this family for a long time, 
are asked throughout Scripture to take the lead in making sure that those who are vulnerable are protected. We're not their parent. We're not called to be. We're called to be an older sibling and look out for them, right? The church family is called to provide special care for lots of different vulnerable groups, for widows, for orphans, for the elderly, the sick, the recently divorced, the outcast, the hurting, the lonely, the broken. God has adopted all of them into his kingdom family, but it's up to us to make sure that they experience the reality of belonging in the family. And I love that the Bible uses adoption language because adoption is permanent. Paul finishes Romans chapter eight, uh, where we started uh, in verse 31 with, with this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As children in God's family, no one condemns us and nothing separates us from the love of our Father. We never have to worry about God rejecting us out of the relationship. God will never unadopt you. Adopting a child changes everything, certainly for the child, but also for the family adopting that child. And that's true of the church, too. We are all in this together, young and old, men and women, single and married, retired or working or attending school. Each adopted child of God that he brings into our growing family will be changed, but will also change our family dynamic. And that is how it should be. We are not called to imprint our way of life onto a new sibling. We are called to fully incorporate them into the family. And fully incorporating someone into the family means they make some changes to adjust to the way the family does things, but the family makes some changes to adjust to the way they do things. There's adjustments on both sides. And man, I've learned this in the last couple of years. <laughs> Izzy and Nikki came into our family and they brought their own history and their own issues, not to mention a whole new dynamic of working with the foster care system. And they have each changed in the last two years. That is true. But our family has also changed because they're in it. And, and so I wanna end this way. I asked my family this week to share some lessons that they've learned about family over these last couple years. And I wanna end this morning, I'm gonna share some of them with you, most of them actually with you, because I think that these lessons also apply to God's family. And so in the spirit of uh, the, that I'm not the only one who knows about these things, 
there, some of the, there, something has come from all six people in my household here, so here we go. Adding someone to your family requires change and sacrifice from everyone, not just the person being added. That's kind of what we were just talking about. That we think that, like, all right, you're going to have to come in here and adjust to our rules, but at the same time, we've learned that our rules sometimes need to also be adjusted to fit the personalities in the house. Uh, And so everybody has to change. The next one, there's more than one way for a person to become family. Our family has grown through marriage, birth, and foster care. God adds to your family the way he wants to, and you make it work. So in other words, God brings who he brings. That ain't up to you. (laughs) What's up to you is how to interact with the family that God's brought you. God brings the family, you make it work. Next, adapting to something new is really hard, but it's not impossible. Since we're constantly in each other's lives, ignoring problems doesn't work. Patience and forgiveness lead to resolution. A long time ago, Steve, I heard Steve say this from stage, he said this a couple of times, that in his family, uh, they have this rule that if uh, in, in a confrontation or conflict or if you're upset with someone, if you are able to let it go, you should do that. If you are not able to let it go, then you should bring it up. If you're not able to let it go, then you have to talk about it because you're family and you're in each other's faces all the time and it's not just going to go away. And, and, we, and I love that so much. Our family tries to live that way. And I'll tell you, most stuff falls in the first category. Most stuff is stuff that really is just a me thing and it's something I just need to let go. Uh, it's not something I need to impose on everybody else. Some stuff is stuff we gotta work out and, and stuff we gotta talk through. Um, most stuff I can let go, some stuff we gotta talk about. Next one, people are worth trusting. We all have something to teach one another and something to learn from one another, but learning to tell when to teach and when to learn is hard. This one's huge for me. I like to hear myself talk. I like to be in charge and learning when to sit back and learn from a teenager in my house that I have parental authority over is hard, but they have things to teach me. I'm not done growing. God put them in my life so that I would also, that I would grow as well. Yes, they have to grow. That's, we know that, that's a given, but so do I, right? Uh, and so uh, asking good questions, listening well, and seeking to understand another's perspective and background all help. The next one, a healthy family prioritizes God and faith and relies on a support system of extended family and church family. I think that speaks for itself. The next one, people who have not personally experienced my problems are still capable of comforting me. That's a big deal in the church family, isn't it? Because we don't, we have, we don't all share the same experiences. But just because you've not experienced what I've experienced, it doesn't mean that you're not able to, to speak into my life and come alongside me and help me walk through it and comfort me in it. Next one. Oh, here's a pandemic one for you. Mental health is an all play. When you're, if you're in a good place, it's up to you to look out for those who are struggling. If someone's struggling, especially if someone's struggling through mental health, they are not gonna stand up here on the stage and let you know. You're gonna have to figure it out. And that's part of this older sibling stuff, right? In the family, we know each other well enough to know you're not okay. My kids hate how creepy it is how well Sarah and I know when they're not okay. 
when like they, you know, they haven't said anything to us about what's going on and we're like, yeah, I know. I know something's going on. I kind of know what it is, actually. That really creeps them out, right? <laughs> we, know, we know each other well enough to know when, when someone's not okay, but it's up to me, the one who's doing all right, to go seek out the person who's not doing well. And that's hard too. Next one, care for each other enough to give the benefit of the doubt instead of assuming the worst and getting offended. That's a big one. I love you enough to assume that you didn't do that on purpose just to hurt me. You might not have even had me in mind when you did it. And so I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt instead of getting offended. And here's where I wanna land. The end, the last one. The one that our four-year-old contributed. More family is better. I have lots of people that love me. Big old grin on her face. And listen, she is not wrong. More family is better. Especially when that family loves God and loves one another. So that's why God designed the church to operate as a growing family. Because more family is better. When we have lots of people who love us, we feel at home. So Nikki's got it right. We're a growing family because more family is better. It's always better when lots of people love you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this metaphor, this family metaphor, because we, we understand it even when we push back on it. We understand what it means to be family or at least what it should mean to be family. And, and God, we just ask that you help us grow into it, that you help us grow into being the family that you call us to be. And, and, and Father, as we enter into a time where we take communion, uh, I just pray that we will have family on our minds, that, that we will have the people sitting around us, uh, next to us and in front of us and behind us in this room, people who are watching online and, and not able to be in the room with us this week, that we will have our family on our minds. Because yes, God, you are our father, but we are siblings, both of each other and of, and of your son, Jesus. We are co-heirs. And so thank you for our status that we don't deserve, but you give anyway. And thank you for your love. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So every week at Northwest, we uh, take communion together as a reminder that God has called us into family. Uh, and it also serves as a reminder that as adopted children of God, we're also heirs, that, that someday uh, we will receive a full inheritance with Jesus in God's eternal kingdom. And until that day, we continue to do life together. We continue to meet together and worship together and learn together and serve together and pray together. And so you'll find the communion packets under your chairs. Uh, you can go ahead and get yours now if you haven't already. Uh, the bread is, is on the top uh, and the juice is uh, there in the bottom. I am excited to announce uh, that it won't be too long now until we go back to our regular way of taking communion, our pre-pandemic way of taking communion, uh, and we can be done with these forever. But for now... For now, uh, his body given for us and his blood poured out for our sins. Amen. First John 3, 1 says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. So don't settle for less. Don't settle for less than full status as a child in God's growing family. Let's sing one more song this morning as we're dismissed.